Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. Okay, before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind you that if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you're going to be able to download our special report. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It has been a project of mine I have been working on for maybe four years now, and I constantly update this with the newest and best strategies. Now, it's really different than a lot of other special reports or books out there because this one is really short, and it is short on purpose. What I want to do is kind of highlight to you the best of the best strategies that are out there in the world and then where you can go for additional information or how you can get involved in these things. So instead of writing a 500-page special report on this, which probably chances are no one is going to read it, this is really highly condensed information. I've actually put it in an infographic. It's an infographic special report. Uh, It has helped thousands upon thousands of people really get a grasp of being an expat and what type of things are out there to protect your assets, professionals that you should be working with, investments, real estate, these types of things. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can pick it up at expatmoneyshow.com. You'll see it. It's on the very first page at the very top. All you need to do is put in your name and email address. You're going to get a chance to actually join my private email list, EMS Pulse. And there's just so much great things that are shared on there. It's completely free. There's no funnel. There's no trick to this. There's no credit card needed, anything like that. It's just a good resource for you, my listener, who I love and adore. And I want to do right by you guys. So go to expatmoneyshow.com, pick this up. Let me know what you think. I'll talk to you soon. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest has been deeply engaged in the cryptography and cryptograph-based projects since the first cyberpunk era. He wrote the first protocols for law in cyberspace, co-authored a foundational paper on private digital economies, and co-founded the Crypto Hippie Anonymous VPN. He wrote the highly influential book, A Lodging for Wayfaring Men, as well as Production versus Plunder, The Breaking Dawn, and others. He has been featured on LouRockwell.com, Zero Hedge, RT, Expat World, International Man, and Freedom Fest. Please welcome to the show, Paul Rosenberg. Paul, how are you? Oh, I'm well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Paul, why don't you take a couple minutes and kind of walk us through your backstory a little bit? I want to get to know you. Well, um, 
I guess the backstory is I was uh, involved in the construction industry for many years. Uh, I was in the electrical business. I ended up writing uh, many books for the electrical business, everything from electricians to engineers. Uh, I co-founded the Fiber Optic Association in the back in the 90s with a bunch of other gentlemen. Um, I taught a bunch of uh, courses for oh, very a variety of people. The one everyone remembers is Iowa State University, um, and I was in busy in that world for many years until I stumbled into cryptography and the general freedom movement, which I guess I was really in since the seventies. Um, one thing led to another. I ended up with cryptography. I ended up. Um, with uh, some awesome meetings we used to have in the old days called the ERIS Society, E-R-I-S, in uh, Aspen. Doug Casey ran it for years, which were just magnificent. Um, and so I've, you know, I've been involved with this stuff for quite a long time, cryptography projects and so on. And now I, I write uh, a newsletter called Free Man's Perspective or Parallel Society, and uh, I put out a weekly articles usually at freemansperspective.com. Well, I love your articles because I subscribe to them myself. I've actually read one of your books. So I read A Lodging for Wayfaring Men. And I think I told you when we had dinner together last month in Mexico, um, how incredible that book was considering the date that it was written. And, and please feel free to share that. Um, well, it was first published in, I think, late October of 2002. Uh, it was written over several years before then, uh, but it was published in 2002 anonymously at first for five years or so. Um, but uh, yeah, it goes back quite a way. Well, and just to give some context for the listeners, um, and I don't know if you will admit this yourself, but a lot of people believe that it was one of the inspirations for cryptocurrency. Um, it is fascinating to read um, the the world that you built and how things could be and the way that they use, um, well, which is essentially now we know as cryptocurrency as, uh, as a medium of exchange. Well, I would, I would like to, I would like to think that that is true. <laughs> I hope it is. Um, I don't really know what was in Satoshi's mind in particular, but, uh, it was certainly leading in that direction. I'll say that. That's amazing. And like, I want to jump in, I suppose, in a few minutes to kind of what's happening in the world, because um, I'd really like to get your opinion on things. But can you give me some backstory or a little bit of insight on how you got into cryptography? Um, because you were really into these types of things before it was like long before it was ever mainstream, um, long before I never knew anything about it or understood anything about it. That's for sure. Sure. Um, I was... Well, let's see. I was working, like I say, in, in the uh, electrical engineering, construction and engineering business. And I was just looking for other things and more interesting things. I ran into all oh, the usual things that people run into uh, or ran into back in the 90s. You got to remember that was a different time. Uh, I ran into Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon. I ran into a uh, uh, Harry Brown, uh, a lot of the things that we all ran into back then and said, you know what, there, there's a lot of importance here. And I had been uh, essentially a, um, oh, I, I wouldn't call it a, a voluntarist because we didn't know that word then, but I had been that way since the late 70s. 
my one of my fundamental experiences was when I was in high school, um, running into first the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, which has some really good stuff in it, and then just deciding that the right way for people to live is that they should do whatever they want as long as they don't bother anybody else and hurt anyone else. And and, and I had given that a, quite a quite a considerable bit considerable bit of thought. Um, see, I was at that time, I guess I'll, I'll just jump into the story. I, at that time I had by accident, uh, ended up with a really, really interesting and aggressive group of older men. I'm 15 or 16 at this point. And I was at the, uh, YMCA, the big one in Chicago, working out with men who were 30 and 40 and 50 years old, uh, professional athletes, um, you know, a really serious workout, and I was the only kid. Somehow they let me in, and these guys, they let it all all hang out in the workout room. After they got, you know, over the novelty of my age, I was just another guy sweating and grunting and trying to lift the barbell one more time. And um, so I heard everything from these guys. These were businessmen, millionaires, a couple of... Uh, Oh, shall we say, guys who worked on the other side of the law. We had doctors and lawyers and everything you can imagine. And here I am, a 16-year-old boy, listening to millionaires tell me their troubles. And I had right away to decide, well, you know, what the heck is going on here? What is right in the world? What isn't? And that's how I came to my conclusion. Uh, that we should be able to do whatever we want so long as we don't hurt anybody. And so I was believing that in the 70s. So when I ran into Nathaniel Brandon or Ayn Rand or Harry Brown or Isabel Patterson or whomever, I, I, I found something that, that resonated with me. So I began to, to read as much of that type of stuff as I could. And then in, I'm not sure what year it was, it would have been 93, 94, maybe 95, I ran into cryptography and said, oh, my God, this gives us a chance to begin the world over again. Because with cryptography, it's, it's a math problem. It's, you know, it's a big, difficult math problem, but it's math. And you can't put a bullet through math. You can't force math. E- either you got the solution to the problem or you don't. And cryptography is pretty much an unbeatable defensive weapon. It can block just about everything. And, oh, my God, we have a tool with which we can wall off areas that are impervious to power, that are impervious to coercion, that are impervious to all the things we complain about. Wow, what do we do with this? And that's when I got into cryptography and, and the cypherpunks and all the other associated groups that were rolling around at that time. Um, and that's how we began to get into all of this. That's amazing. So I have to ask, like, how does that work in a practical sense with the mathematics? Like, I've, I've, I've had a lot to do with cryptocurrency in the past, but I suppose I still, at this point, I still don't understand not the practical aspects of using it as a, as a means for exchange and a store of value um, 
and these types of things, but for the protection of data and for the the additional things that would help to build the world anew, which I think was how you phrased it. What are some of the other practical senses that this gets used in? Well, I, I, I'm not sure I understand your question. Do you want to know how cryptography works, or do you want to know how it applies? The application, I suppose. Because I, I guess I always have looked at it, I have not looked so much at the history. I've looked at the practical aspect of using it in exchange or in instead of using U.S. dollars or any other fiat currency. But I suppose taking a step back and talking about cryptography and how that is actually used in all over the world, the applications all over the world. Okay. Um, cryptography is used pretty much everywhere around the world now. It's often not the best implementation of it, uh, but it's used everywhere. It, every type of uh, financial transaction that goes over the Internet, uh, well, just about every, is protected with cryptography. Cryptography, you know, the, the old cypherpunks who were trying to get cryptography into the world, boy, we won. It's everywhere now. It often isn't used as well as we would like or in ways that we particularly like. You know, they protect dollars and euros and yen with two. Um, but boy, it's used everywhere because if not, the, the Internet, the, the structure of the Internet uh, gave no concern to privacy or really not a lot to security either. Is it encryption? Is that what we're talking about? Yes, we're talking about encryption. Wonderful. Okay. Okay. So there's there's all sorts of all sorts of encryption and all sorts of things you can do with it. Um, so it's applied, you know, with email and with uh, telephone calls often and whatever. It, various types of encryption are used. Um, there's also things we do that are called hashes. And a hash is just pretty much it, it's a number that you that proves that what you said was really there. Um, Again, it's, it's, it's math. It's not that complicated, it, it, but it is, it's not that hard, but it is complex. Um, and it's a hash, and it proves beyond any shadow of a doubt. I think it's uh, what the one we use for Bitcoin is 16 to the 40th power. Uh, so it's a gigantic number. You just forget about it. You think you're going you're gonna, to, you know, fake it, forget it. Um, you know, and it proves that what the data you just gave me is the same data that, you know, that started out, that made the hash. Uh, so this is used for all sorts of, of things, uh, definitely used in cryptocurrencies all the time. It, it's really the fundamental piece that's used in cryptocurrencies. Uh, so it, it's used pretty much everywhere the data is used now. And like I say, some places better, some places worse, but it's, it's used kind of everywhere. I understand now. See, for some reason, I was thinking it was something separate from the things that we use in day-to-day -day life. I wasn't thinking of it as encryption or in the sense, um, in this sense. So that's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's the same thing, just you know, different implementations. Uh, you're going to use you know different size key, a different type of uh, algorithm, which is just a formula, just a, a set of instructions on how to use it. You can. Uh, apply it to X, Y, or Z. You can use it any number of ways, and that's that's uh, the thing that is done. We use it one way for email, another way for text, another way for something else. Okay. Well, and I suppose this is a really relevant topic right now because 
watching what the Fed is doing with printing money in, um, you know, dropping, I think it was $1.5 trillion through the Federal Reserve or something like that. A couple of days ago, they announced basically QE4, QE5. Um, I think that things like this are going to become more and more necessary and more and more um, apparent as you said, as a defensive, but I would say almost as a weapon. Well, you know, it, it, fundamentally it's defensive, not offensive. But, you know, when you stop them, it's, it's pretty effective. When you stop somebody from, from taking your stuff, from taking your data, from knowing, you know, your mind, um, that's a pretty powerful weapon. So I really want to get your opinion about kind of what is going on in the world. Like we're, we're in the thick of, or maybe some would say at the beginning of the coronavirus. Um, we've had the uprising in Hong Kong. We've had Brexit. We've had trade war. It's an election year. There's just a thousand things going on. And I just want to kind of pick your brain, I suppose, about a bunch of them. What's your, your general prerogative towards uh, to the world right now? Um, you know, on one hand, things are going really well. They're going better. Uh, humans are better now than they were a thousand years ago. Now, I know that's a really loaded statement. Um, and people freak out when you say things like that. They say, yeah, but, you know, I saw a murder in, in the corner last year. And, I, you know, all, and then those things are all true. But humans have a tendency to notice the bad and ignore the good. You know, when you drive down the street, you maybe pass, oh, I don't know, a thousand cars on your, on your way to and from work, and you totally ignore the 999 people who drive normally. But you remember the one jerk who cut you off. And we have a problem that way. Um, but overall, humans in general... Obviously, we're a long way from, from you know, purity. Uh, but humans in general are better than they used to be. Uh, our technology, obviously, is massively better. Um, people are just better than they used to be, and life is generally better than it used to be. Uh, violent crime is way down just, just since I was a teenager. Uh, things are getting better. However... We have these giant organizations called states that are plunder. Uh, that's just what they are. They're plunderers. And most of us of our time have been trained for many, many years to look at them as saviors. And this is kind of reaching uh, a peak and perhaps a break point. Uh, this, we have to move past it. What I like to, how I like to explain it is that we're living with space age technology under bronze age rulership and something's going to give, uh, because states, uh, of whatever flavor survive only by taking things by force, by extortion, by direct, by direct theft, whatever. Uh, they take things that people really wouldn't give them otherwise. And this is a horrible model. No matter who gets into that organization, it really only makes them worse because all the incentives are in favor of plunder. They're not in favor of production. So even if you get a, a saint who 
goes to work for a government, and, and there certainly aren't a whole lot of saints that do that, um, they're still going to be, all the pressure is going to be on them to bend and break and do things according to the model of plunder. That's all the incentives facing them. And this is this is a real problem for us. We need to get past it. We need to develop uh, decentralized ways of doing things. And we have them. We have them in spades. It's just that they're forbidden. Uh, we have we have zero in most cases political freedom. That is, you cannot choose to be ruled under a monarchy or to be ruled under a, a full blown state. Or I'll, I'll choose a. Uh, I'm an American. I'll choose a, a 1789 uh, uh, American state, or I'll choose the, the American state of 1866. Or I'll choose a minarchy, or I'll choose none of the above. Um, we don't have those kind of choices. We have, you will take what we give you, and you will like it. Otherwise, you're going to be facing trouble of whatever sort. Uh, we have to get past that. And we are making progress. If I could take you back to 1990-something and start talking the way gosh, that I'm talking right now, I'd be the only guy you've ever met who ever said anything like that. Now it's everywhere. There are thousands and thousands of people, millions, I'm sure, who would tend to agree with me. See, and that's an interesting point, because I wonder sometimes, like, are there more people that are waking up and understanding these things? Or is it because now, well, and I know this is completely subjective, but is it because that I'm now so involved in these circles that it comes up all the time and therefore I attract like-minded people? I don't know. Um, it's interesting because I lived in the Middle East for eight years, okay? I lived in Abu Dhabi for eight years, and I loved my life there, and we had a, we had a great time. But within moving to Panama, we've been here eight months, and now literally every single person I know is a libertarian or an anarchist, and it's like everybody I meet even I go to my chiropractor, I speak with him, and he seems pretty anti-state. I don't know if he would label himself as a libertarian, but I like it's every day I have conversations like this, and I just these are just people I meet on the streets, and in Abu Dhabi, it was just never the case. Now, is it that times are changing? Is it the location? Is it, is it just the places that I'm with? I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about. Well, I'm, I'm convinced that it's all of the above. The Middle East is, is not particularly at the forefront of, of that type of thinking. Um, the Western world, for whatever reason, seems to be. Uh, and it is definitely, definitely so much more now than it used to be. Let me tell you another story. A few years ago, I was at a, at a conference that used to be held, and I hope will be held again, called Libertopia. And I was walking around, and I saw this older gentleman and uh, we passed each other a couple of times, and we didn't really have a chance to talk. And then at the checkout, the day after, you know, we're all paying our hotel bill and getting ready to go home. And here's the same man there. And I, you know, walked up and said, hey, how are you? I saw you in the show. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And, and I said to him, isn't it wonderful to see how many young people are here who get it? And the man just about cried. He stopped and he said, you know, 
I started in this in 1969 with the objectivists. I thought we were all just going to get old and die and it would be over. And that's the way it seemed back then. We were a few crazy people on the fringes. And boy, it isn't that way anymore. There are thousands, and then with cryptocurrency now, it is absolutely training people in this. Because even if you just get into Bitcoin or one of the others, for the sake of I want to get rich quick, pretty soon you're into this thing and you're realizing that this thing functions without a central boss and that nobody can tell you what you can buy and sell or who you can buy and sell with and they can't stop your transaction or reverse it or anything else and if you use it intelligently they can't they don't even know who you are and once they get that model in their head that this is real not just a sci-fi story but it's real and it actually works and I've even used it then they change well, and I think that a continuation from that is, and especially speaking about the younger generation, is people are having conversations about money again. You know, it became yeah. this taboo subject where no one was allowed to talk about money. It was very rude. And I swear that was done on purpose. People want, like the government wanted people to be ignorant about how money works and put these types of taboos in place through one way or another. Now the conversation has opened up. Now people are actually sitting around the dining room table and and talking about these types of things openly and, and with interest. I talk about it with my family. Um, and I know that lots of other families who maybe were not raised in that way are now doing it. My new book, Expat Secrets, is based on my own experiences from traveling to more than 100 countries over the last 20 years of being an expat. There's no fluff in this book, just actionable advice from someone who leads this type of lifestyle every single day. So if you want to pay zero taxes, live overseas, and make giant piles of money, then I want you to grab a copy of my brand new book, Expat Secrets, on Amazon today. Just go to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. Yeah, that, that's a big deal. That's, that's really important. And let me tell you something else that was, that was done on purpose is that in economics programs, and I've known people from well-respected you know, degrees with, with, from well-respected economic programs in major universities who came to me and said, look, I'm a little embarrassed to ask this because I've got a degree in economics. But they never told us where dollars actually come from. Can you tell me? I believe it. When I was at the when I was at the conference a couple months ago, or maybe one month ago, um, I was spending time with a, a young guy in his early twenties, and he had just finished his economics degree, and he didn't know what the Federal Reserve was. Yeah, like he didn't know. He had no idea. Like that's. He didn't know how it worked. He didn't know who run it. He didn't know who owned it. He didn't know. He doesn't know any. He has no idea what it is. Try to explain to him it's about as federal as Federal Express. <laughs> well, that's a good way to say it. It's not, it's not federal and it's not a reserve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So 
what do you think is going on with the coronavirus right now? I've heard so many different types of opinions, and, and I have my own opinion, but I'll, I'll save that for a minute. I, I want to get some insights from you, what you think is happening, what you think is, is the best course of action for people. Okay. Um, well, you know, right now, uh, there's a lot of fear. And when fear is going on, I take a step back because fear makes humans stupid. Uh, if not fundamentally stupid, functionally stupid. Um, so I, when, when I see fear, I take a step back and I start looking for numbers. And, you know, um, I was going to say plagues, but uh, epidemics uh, are quirky things. They sometimes uh, start and stop uh, and, and do things you don't expect, um, which may have something to do with poor information gathering. But in any event, that's, that's what goes on. So it's, it's kind of, uh, you don't want to make any final determinations. But as of right now, the numbers just aren't that bad. Uh, as, as we're talking, 7,000 people have died worldwide since, since December. Now, that sucks. And it's really bad. And it's possible that it will get a lot worse. Um, but you know the, the the annual flu is is, is or an order or two uh, an order of magnitude better than that so or worse than that i should say <laughs> uh, but the numbers just aren't that bad so far and the other number that that i ran into a day ago was that the number of new cases out of china had dropped it was 34 cases uh in the whole country of china so those numbers make it look like the virus is passing. It's also uh, being reported, and I think is true, that the number of people who have actually been exposed to the virus is gigantic compared to the number of people who have actually gotten seriously ill or died. When people come up with these things like the death rate is 10%, well, that's the number of people who have been tested which mean, which it hasn't been very many, by the way. Um, and so when you compare the number of people who are actually sick to the number who died, that's what it is. Uh, or, well, whatever. The, that's what the scary number is, whatever it may be. But what about things like Merkel coming on and saying that she expects 70% of Germans to get coronavirus, and Boris Johnson coming on and he expects something like 50% of the UK to come down with coronavirus? Well, these are politicians who are trying to remain relevant and or trying to get a good fear going so they can get, you know, their surveillance stuff and whatever else it is they want. Um, they, if they really thought that, they would have been saying so at the beginning. Uh, this is, you know, politicians are, are funny beings. You know, they want to be relevant. They want to, where's the parade going? Oh, here, I'll, I'll lead it for you. Um, so I think that's really most of what's going on with that. It may be that 70% of, of of the world is exposed to corona and uh it, it may be that maybe that high already and that's that the death rate is extreme extremely low we just don't know yet um is there a possibility that it's going to get very very bad yes there is and uh, but so far the numbers don't really bear it out uh you know you, you gotta go back to the numbers and so far they're not bearing that out that said it is very dangerous to specific groups, and that is people who are very old, people who have serious health issues, particularly heart and lung, 
uh, and it's of some considerable danger to Chinese men in particular uh, and men that smoke. Um, for there's a particular receptor, cellular receptor, this thing attaches to that's much more prevalent in Chinese men than in others. So it's particularly danger, dangerous to Chinese men who smoke. Um, so those are the things that are going on. Um, so far, I just don't see the numbers to panic. Okay, so that's on the health side. Let's talk about the economic side, which I suppose is something that I'm a lot more concerned about, is the economic side of this. They're burning it down. I mean, they are just going nuts. Um, the Forget that, I mean, the stock market is, is tanking, which is very important because it's virtually 100%, probably 99 in, in point X, of all the retirement money in the Western world is in the stock and bond markets. And people who were convinced that they were doing really well and would do well are getting hammered. And the psychological impact of that is going to be significant. Not to mention the fact that through the United States and a lot of other places, they're shutting the restaurants and the bars and you can't have sports and you have, uh, it's really, uh, it's throwing a lot of people out of work. And sadly, the people who probably can least afford to be out of work, uh, these guys are going to be missing paychecks. And in the United States anyway, a very significant majority of them are living paycheck to paycheck. What happens when the money stops? What are these guys going to do? Well, they're not going to pay their rent, and they're going to move back in with mom and dad or with their uncle or aunt or something else. And the whole economy of the Western world is built upon spend, 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 and that's breaking. Um, so it's going to be quite a thing. It, it already is, and uh, you know, it's going to change a lot of things. Well, and I can see the the welfare state just growing exponentially now. Oh, it's going to it, these people will definitely be going directly onto welfare because they have no choice. Uh, I, I'm not seeing anything like you know food riots or anything, but they will go directly onto welfare and whatever other programs because they have no choice. What are they supposed to do? Starve? Um, so yeah, that's definitely going to happen. And you know, there's there's things bad coming out of this. And there's also things that are beneficial that are coming out of it. One of them is this spend, 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 spend every dollar you got. I want this. You got to buy the things you want, man. Buy it. Take your credit card out. Use it. Get the things you want. That's coming to an end. Yeah. You only live once. That's, I think, the, the saying these days. You only live once. You know, there's a, there was a famous passage uh, in, well, not famous, but there's, there was an important passage in the 1920s um, where the bosses of Wall Street decided, uh, because of their experience in World War I, it's, it's a long story, uh, but they decided that they needed to move America from an economy based upon what people needed to an economy based upon what people wanted because they could sell more stuff. And it mm -hmm. worked. And now 
if we're lucky, it goes back to people getting things that they need and not worrying that they're not going to have the newest video or game or everything else because they're you know, or gym shoes because, you know, Bobby down the street has it and Susie will, won't think mm-hmm. I'm as cool as Bobby. Uh, you know, it's really that stupid. Um, mm-hmm. Keeping up with that, the Joneses. Right. That, but that's the way that has been weaponized and turned into a virtue over the past uh, number of years. Uh, and if we're very lucky, that will end, and that will be so much better for us. So, I mean, just economically and in terms of uh, manipulation, and just it'll be so much better for us if that happens. And I, I'm really, I, I will do whatever I can to help that happen, and I really hope it does. Well, that's really interesting because I never, I, I haven't really thought too much of the good sides right now. A lot of my mind is focused on things like supply chains. I suppose. You know, okay, if the, and the, this is my train of thought, and please punch holes in it if, if you think that I'm wrong, but they close the schools, therefore the people that would normally send their kids to school so that they can go and have a job can't do so. Then they close the office, so everyone has to stay home, no one's earning any money. Then the, the factories are closed, they're not producing any goods. Then the the port or the trucking company and the warehouses, these guys have got to stay home. They're sick. Their their kids are at home, and then the goods are not making it to the store. And then when if they do make it to the store, there's no one to unload the goods. And it's just like every piece, even if you just remove a small fraction of the people that are involved in these processes, I just think that it becomes more and more difficult. And at a certain point, and I don't know what exactly that point is, but at a certain point, everything is going to break. Well, a lot of things are breaking already, but I don't think that's going to go on terribly long for the simple reason that once people are feeling pain, they stop obeying very well. That is part of the good part, I think. <laughs> part, part, part of the positives, maybe, if people can uh, think for themselves. Right. In the West, uh, in the East, too, uh, over the last, over my lifetime, uh, the rulers of whatever flavor have enjoyed 99.9% automatic, automated, knee-jerk compliance. When they give an order, everyone says, sir, yes, sir, sir, we'll do whatever you say. Well, they'll, Americans in particular, will go along, will acquiesce, will go along until they start feeling pain. Uh, and then they get grumpy. And then they tell you to go take a flying leap. And they start doing what they need. And, oh, by the way, Americans have guns. And they don't use them. They're usually tucked away in the attic, uh, somewhere, you know, in, locked up somewhere. But if you piss them off enough, they will pull them out. And if you tell them you're not allowed to get food, there's, there's going to be some lead. Mm-hmm. But I think that's such an interesting point because – and I, I honestly believe that most people don't understand this, but the right to bear arms is actually the right to bear arms so that you can defend yourself against the government. That's why that was put in place, so that you couldn't be terrorized by the government. And people just think of it as self-defense so that they don't get mugged on the street. But it goes much larger than that. Oh, yeah. This, this was put in there for that reason. Because, look, if you're a peasant and, you know, all you got is—, is is what a pitchfork well you know that, that may they may help you in in some type of emergency um but you have to be able to stand up if in if god forbid it becomes necessary against somebody else 
who is armed, and it's particularly who is armed with your money, uh, who's trying to hurt you. And you got to remember, this was what these people in the colonies just went through. And they wrote, they very carefully wrote their documents. You look at, at the, uh, what is called the Bill of Rights, which is a bad name, uh, because it sounds like the government is giving you rights. Here they are. But what you, if you read the document, what it actually says is the government may not do this, and it may not do this, and it may not do this, and it may not do this, because we have rights from God, not from you, from God, you know, nature and nature's God. That's, where, that's what we've got, and we're going to empower you to do X, Y, Z, but you may not do this, 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 and this, and they were very clear. That you may not tell us we can't be armed. Yeah, I read a lot by, and, and I know when we had dinner together, we had a brief conversation, but by Richard Mayberry. And he talks about how the original documents that were written in the United States was to try to keep the government as small and as impotent as possible. So they had no real rights, that it was supposed to be difficult to pass laws, that it was supposed to be... Um, very challenging for them to to seize too much power. Now, I think that stood up for a very long time, and somewhere along the way, we've kind of lost our way. Well, you know, there have been there there were a bunch of of attacks on it. Uh, the attacks began right away. Uh, to be honest, um, the Constitution of the United States was I don't want to call it a coup, but it was it was something like that. It was Alexander Hamilton and a bunch of congressmen who he bribed. Uh, very clearly, it's a long story, but he definitely was was um, a, a form of bribery, uh, and he hijacked a meeting that was supposed to be, um, you know, to tweak the the Articles of Confederation. He just turned it around. Jefferson wasn't there. Sam Adams, John Adams, weren't there. Okay, the the, the guys. Ben Franklin wasn't there. Oh, Ben Franklin was there. Um, but but most of the people who we think of, they weren't there. And um, it just barely got passed. And again, it was the, the driver was very clearly Alexander Hamilton, um, who was, <laughs> in my book, uh, not a very uh, worthy person. Very bright, very smart, very capable, but not a good guy. Um, so... Anyway, it be, there were problems at the beginning, uh, and the Articles of Confederation weren't that bad. Like you say, they were supposed to make things difficult for government. That was the point, and things during the period of the Articles were really good for people. They were all kinds of associations and newspapers and new ventures and, and founding new communities. Pe people were doing really, really well. I mean, you know, the usual, you know, human examples, you know, there's always something going wrong in the world. Um, but people were doing pretty darn well, uh, and then they brought in the Constitution, uh, which you know James Madison did a pretty good job writing it. But it still, it was it was uh, a step on, in the direction of uh, centralized power, lording it over everyone else. Well, and I want to bring things back on to what we were talking about before, because, and I and I think this is a perfect not segue, but a perfect um, way to circle back, is that at one point, humanity had a choice of where they wanted to live and where they wanted to go. And 
they could put themselves in a situation like the United States when it was being formed, and they decided that Europe was too oppressive, and they couldn't um, defend themselves, and they couldn't build, and they were under the thumb of government there. So they went to a new area to build life anew. Do you see the same thing happening now? As the world is now more interconnected, do you think that states are going to be competing with one another to offer more? Like, I've moved to Panama because it was more opportunity for me here than it was in the Middle East. Um, you know, so like, I, I feel like on sometimes governments are getting so big and the state is getting so powerful. I feel like I'm going to suffocate. But in other times, I come out and I'm like, I can actually go shopping now. I can do jurisdictional shopping and I can have my company in one place and I have my banking in another place. I can have my residency in a third place. And I try to live these types of things. But I'm, a, I'm interested in what your opinion is of where we're going in the future with these types of things. Well, you ask really good questions. For the last 20 years, um, what you're talking about, the jurisdictional arbitrage and all those things, have been getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed underneath financial tyranny. Um, the old PTs, perpetual travelers, was a great, magnificent strategy in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and even the 70s, even into the 80s. Uh, and then with the banking, uh, central banking, and with the commandeering of the economy by the state, um, it began getting worse and worse and worse and worse for for doing that, and much more difficult, scaring off all the you know all the banks to, uh, so U.S. citizens can't get accounts and so on. But with what's going on now and the meltdowns going on in the markets, and almost certainly uh, the European Central Bank is 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 beyond solvent. It may have to break up. Uh, the IMF is starting to bail them out altogether. Europe's going to be having a big, big problem. Uh, so things are starting to break. If they do break to any significant degree, then what you're talking about, the PT strategy of jurisdictional arbitrage and so on, may come into its own, a new golden age. Uh, it will be a scary at first, um, it may be difficult, but if the financial tyranny breaks, if all of a sudden the Russians and Chinese have a system like SWIFT that, that we can use to get around, if the central banks uh, break up or if states begin breaking up, and all of a sudden it's, it's not you know four or five big states that run the world, but it's you know 20 or 30 or 50 states that, that control parts of the world – then we're looking at something very, very interesting and a lot of opportunities opening up. Yeah, I would agree with that, definitely. And I think that it's so interesting because there's a lot of countries out there and who don't have a lot of natural resources, which is a way that a lot of countries gain wealth in the beginning. Um, they don't maybe have a lot of human capital. They're, the populace is not very well educated. But they can offer things like citizenship and attract capital to their shores and build an economy. Just look at what happened in Singapore over the last 50 years, how it went from basically a muddy swamp to a thriving met metropolitan um, with extremely educated, hardworking individuals. Um, in, in Hong Kong, right before them. Exactly. And I think that hopefully if... I think that Panama is also headed in that direction. There's still some fundamental problems here, 
But I think that when you open up a lot of borders and you, you eliminate some of the rules and the bureaucracy and you invite people and invite capital to the country, you know, some amazing things can happen. They can. I mean, like you say, Singapore and Hong Kong, Hong Kong, these are brilliant test cases. Open up the doors, let people do business, treat them well, give them some basic assurance that they're not going to, things aren't going to change next year and you're going to take their stuff and you are going to see things change. Uh, because give, give businesses a chance to survive and to make money and to keep what they, what they gain, people jump. They'll jump on the opportunity and they will do things. But that's what's so amazing because I see socialism coming back with such force in the United States and you can just look around the world and you know it doesn't work. But somehow people keep wanting to try it over and over and over again. It just is, is mind-boggling. We have these, taste, these case studies where open market and free enterprise and Austrian School of Economics, they work. And then you look at somewhere like Venezuela and it doesn't work. It didn't work for the USSR. It didn't work for Cuba. It didn't work for many other countries in the world. But then you have leftists who go on and go in and give away everything for free. Well, you know, there's three basic reasons that that works. One is, the first reason is that most people are not educated. They're indoctrinated in schools. And it's all just a big you know, uh, a big mess that they don't really understand, but they, you know, get the right answer on the test and move on. Um, the second is that socialists are really, really good at complaining and really, really good at, at convincing people that they've got the magic fix that, by the way, doesn't require too much of them. And you know, if you read between things, we get the rich guy stuff. Um, so socialists are really good at doing that. Uh, they're really good at, at manipulating words and vocabulary and, and so on. They're very good at this. And, and, and number three is what we've had in the last 20, 30, 40, 40, 40 years, really, is this idea uh, of capitalism as Wall Street. And Wall Street has, and all the big corporations, have put all the money into themselves and into their friends and into this virtual economy, Wall Street and, and all the others like them. Meanwhile, small-town America is decimated. There's no jobs. And if you grow up in one of these little towns anywhere from, you know, Kansas or wherever, there's no jobs. You can be a cop. You can join the Army. Maybe you can get a job as a teacher in a government school, and there's really not much else. And these people know that they're being, they're being decimated. They also know that most of their politicians think that they're degenerate. If you're a small-town person, if you're not urban and technical, then you're just kind of a degenerate who needs just to go away and to be ignored. Uh, we had it just recently with Mike Bloomberg, of all people, uh, going on about how you know farmers aren't really very smart. If, you, if you're not very good at stuff, you, you know you should just, you, you know they can be farmers. Anybody can be a farmer. <laughs> Is that what he was saying? Uh, it's unbelievable. You know, this guy should go try being a farmer. He's saying, you know, <laughs> wow. Uh, plus, you know, why would you even say that even if you believed it? How stupid is that? Um, but the guys in small town America, uh, 
know that their their rulers despise them, and they know that they're being screwed, and they've been trained all their life that government is life itself. With no government, we're all going to die. And so rather than just ditching government altogether, which they're not emotionally prepared to do, and they but they know that the way it is is, is screwing them over horribly. Well, they'll give us they'll roll the dice on Trump or they'll roll the dice on a socialist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think some of it is, you know, if you can't beat them, join them type of mentality. Like a lot of the professions that you just mentioned, you know, the school system, well, it's all government run. The police and the military are, in a lot of cases, just big thugs who run around the world and terrorize people. It's, you know, bringing people into the system, it's, it's I don't know. No, there, there's not much left. I, listen, I was in a small town not long ago and, and observed um, the police department, and it's an expanding business. They're getting into everything. They've got all sorts, you know, they're bringing more and more people into the system. That means more and more people with criminal problems and court dates and, you know, for, for things that really shouldn't be. And, and, you know, there's nothing for these guys to do, so they tend to get in trouble sometimes. So, you know, it's, it's a mess in, in, in rural America, and it's caused because of economic problems, economic distortions, uh, all the money going to Wall Street, all the, you know, the the redoing of, of the healthcare industry in America. That just has been a massive, massive disaster for actual people on the street. Um, and, you know, oceans of money being being redirected to these corporations who, oh, by the way, pay all the congressmen and wrote the bill. Gee. So, you know, why wouldn't people be pissed off? Well, and that's one of the big things that annoys me when people try to fight against capitalism. They're like, well, look at the big companies. They just control everything. I'm like, okay, but that's not necessarily capitalism. That's cronyism. They didn't get that way. They didn't get that special privilege just because that they're the greatest one in the marketplace. In a lot of, t- in a lot of circumstances, the competitors have been kept out of the marketplace. So it, uh, it's actually a monopoly. Oh, for, for large businesses, that's almost everywhere. In the United States, anyway, and I mean in Europe as well, uh, and well, in a lot of places, uh, it's can, anything that is regulated means that you've got to have a man in Washington or in the state capital. Otherwise, you're going to get creamed. And, the, and there are a lot of businesses that aren't devious, horrible people by, in, by nature that are forced into this game because if not, their companies can be destroyed. So they've got to, they've got to, you know, hire congressmen. I mean, you know, they call it giving donations, but let's be honest, it's bribery. Uh, but you've got to do it, otherwise you're going to get pushed out. I get some kind of emotional sometimes when I talk about these things, Paul. I get so, like, worked up, and I suppose this is one of the reasons that I love doing a podcast, though, is because I hope that people are out there and they're listening to things like this, and you know, it sparks an interest or it inspires someone or plants a seed and they go out there and they read and, and they try to understand these things a little bit more themselves. Because when you really start digging into it and you, and you start to understand and the blinders come off, it's really amazing what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I say, more and more and more people are starting to, to, look outside of this little box they've been tied into since 
they first walked into to a school. Um, they're they're starting to think outside and to look around and to see things for what they actually are, not what they've been told they are. And uh, I'm telling you, if this keeps going, this is a really good thing for the future of humanity. So what are some recommendations or, or some, some things that you think that people should be understanding or preparing themselves for? You know, I, I was reading one of your articles, and I love the title of it. It was Using Crises for Fun and Profit. I thought that was so brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, you know, people have to look at things that are resilient, that will continue working, that work no matter what. Um, for money, start looking at cryptocurrency. Find out how it works. Go to some Bitcoin meetups. Talk to people. See how this, see what this thing really is. See how it works. Uh, get a little bit. Use it. See what it feels like in your hand, so to speak. Um, you know, silver and gold are fine, too. Uh, they are also decentralized currencies. The problem with silver and gold is one that you can't use it anywhere outside of the you know the reach of your hand. You can send it through the mail, but that's pretty difficult um, and slow. Uh, and also that most people who hold silver and gold don't actually use it. They stack it up on a shelf and look at it. Well, that doesn't do very much good. I mean, it may someday as an insurance policy, but you know even then you've got to use the thing. And if there is no gold economy that functions with, you know, with people and exchangers and people who will make change for you and so on, uh, then it's really not that good. Cryptocurrency is used. So, you know, either one's fine, just, you know, if, if it's used. So I definitely suggest people start going to Bitcoin meetups. Talk to people. Find out. See what this thing is. Start using it. And start talking to your friends and neighbors. Start reading good books. Start thinking about things. And start trusting yourself. You know, we're all trained uh, to think that we're just on the edge of doing something wrong. We might be bad by accident. We could get in trouble. Somebody might say bad things about us and ridicule us. Throw all that crap away. Trust yourself. Think about things. Do the research. Read the books. Find out what's actually going on. Consider alternatives uh, of whatever. Uh, consider the opposite of what you already think. You're probably going to find out that you're right, but you should consider it. So you've taken a look at both sides. Um, and start trusting yourself to be able to make a judgment, to be able to make a choice, to be able to uh, to be an independent actor in the world without having to get input from somebody else first. Once we do that, the world changes. And once we actually believe that it's right for people to do what they want so long as they don't hurt anybody, that this is the right model for human life, and if we start taking that seriously and extending it to all the areas of our lives, the world will never, ever be the same again. We will be massively better. I love it. Brilliant. Paul, this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. If my listeners want to learn more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? Uh, first of all, freemansperspective.com, just the way it sounds. Uh, that's where I do uh, my writing. And uh, if you want to protect yourself for real on the internet, uh, go to CryptoHippie.com. 
Perfect. And I'll make sure that all of the links for these are in Paul's episode at expatmoneyshow.com. Thanks so much, Paul. Oh, my pleasure. Hey, everyone. I just want to tell you about a great opportunity. You see, we've had a massive interest lately in learning a second language. And I do a lot of my language training with my very good friend, Ollie Richard. We've been friends for three or four years now, and he's been on my program, and I've been on his program, and he spoke at my conferences, and I've spoke at his conferences. And he really is a genius. His techniques for teaching languages are just out of this world. He actually makes it fun and enjoyable. He was one of the main drivers for me rekindling my interest in Spanish. And under his tutelage and his advice and using his programs, I went from really crummy Spanish to quite fluent in a really short amount of time. So if you are looking to learn a second language or maybe even a third language, what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language forward slash language, and it's going to redirect you to some of all these best courses out there in the world. And there's some special promotions going on, some special opportunities for subscribers of my podcast. So I hope you take us up on this offer and go and check it out. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language to get the best resources in the world for learning a second language. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Enjoy. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.